Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of Middle Market Growth Magazine, and I'm joined by phone today by Elizabeth Cutler, the co-founder of SoulCycle. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So SoulCycle today is a hugely popular chain of indoor cycling studios, and because of that, I think it's easy to take it for granted that people will regularly pay to take a spin class. But at the time that you co-founded the company in 2006, indoor cycling wasn't really what it is today. So I'm curious, why was this fitness segment one that you wanted to build a business around? Well, for starters, I think it's important to sort of remember that people were trying to still find their fitness in 2006, and I was certainly one of those people. I had um, had kids. I was overweight. I needed cardio. I hated to work out. I joined a gym. I found it very difficult to know what to do after I walked through the door. I just didn't have, it's not that I didn't have the courage to engage. It's just I didn't know what to do after I had gotten there. And I realized um, that if I wanted to find something that I could really dedicate myself to doing, I would have to create it for myself because I just wasn't finding anything out there. A friend of mine had taken me to uh, an indoor cycling class, and I once I got off that bike after my first class, I realized that there was something in that room that I could reshape and reform into creating something that was joyful, something that was much more difficult to do on my own, uh, for myself on my own with a group of people would be much easier. And also something that uh, could be kind of tribal, that I could find something that I would commit to and that therefore would kind of change my life. And so that's why Julie and I decided to start SoulCycle um, is because we really needed a place to work out. And I personally came to it because of desperation. And I think a lot of that is true for her as well. And I think the other thing that people probably take for granted about SoulCycle is the design of the studios themselves. Um, But I understand that your first location looked quite different than they look today. So can you talk about what the very first SoulCycle studio was like? Well, the very first SoulCycle studio we found on Craigslist. Uh, We were having a hard time finding any location, and we couldn't find any landlords that would call us back or brokers that would call us back. And so the Craigslist, uh, looking at Craigslist, seemed like, well, somebody's going to call us back from Craigslist, so let's try that, and that's what worked out. We took a five-year sublet on a former dance studio, and it's true that the the studio doesn't look that much um, like the current studios do. It was hidden down a, a long hallway uh, off of a rear lobby of a building on West 72nd Street, but it was very well located, like Full Cycle Studios are today, and all of the elements that were present um, in that studio, that very first studio on 72nd Street, are still in the Full Cycle Studios. 90 plus studios today. So um, the design elements were the same. The branding was the same. The idea of like walking in and receiving great hospitality was the same. Um, Bumping into people and feeling like an atmosphere of like you are are welcome and included uh, was the same. And the main things that were different was our approach to soundproofing, which we learned a lot about along the way. And, of course, we didn't have any kind of, like, teacher training program um, in that first studio, and we also developed that along the way. Hmm. 
And another detail that I love that I've heard you mention in another interview was, I think you said that the original studio, you weren't even allowed to have signage outside and you had kind of a creative workaround. Can you talk about that? Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I think I must have blocked that out. <laughs> yes. So when we went to go look at the first studio, um, we were excited because it was on the ground floor. And as we went to sign the lease, uh, the broker let us know, oh, sorry, you can't have a sign on the outside of the building because this is a landmark building, but you can have a little tiny nameplate. And then, of course, you can put a sign on, on the door inside of the building, which, of course, no one could ever see from um, from the sidewalk. Oh, and you can't have a sandwich board or anything, any kind of signage whatsoever. And we sort of looked at each other and we went, oh, boy, we're going to have to work that much harder to get people to be able to find us. Um, and I was lamenting this and talking to a friend, and she said, well, why don't you buy one of those rickshaws, and you can just paint it and put a sign on the rickshaw, and you can you can, you know, lock it up out in front of the studio. And I thought, oh, my God, that is absolutely brilliant. So that is what we did. Um, and that was our signage. And we used to get ticketed by the community board, and it was $65. And so we would decide on certain days it was worth keeping the rickshaw out. And then on other days it really wasn't, you know, worth the extra 65 bucks. So that is how we we let people know that they were in the vicinity of Soul Cycle. And then the real moment came, of course, when somebody called the front desk and said, is this the that place, this, that really awesome place that you, nobody can find that's the secret of the <laughs> Upper West Side? I'm, I think I'm, I, I'm in the neighborhood and I want to come and take a class. And Julie and I sort of looked at each other and we thought, okay. Like, it was another indicator that, we, that it was going to be fine, that we were going to make it if we were that super cool hidden place that everybody was trying to find on the Upper West Side. It's kind of a backdoor into exclusivity by accident. Exactly, very much by accident. We were trying to make it absolutely not that way, but because it was hard to find, um, it did become that way. And thank goodness it was hard to find because that meant the the rent was cheap and we'd be able to afford it. Another thing that people might not know is that I understand SoulCycle was one of the first fitness concepts to use a pay by the class model. So you weren't just asking people to, you know, join and pay a membership fee. You're asking them to come and and pay every single time for a class. Why did you decide to go that route? We felt like the gym model at that time was broken, that it was really just about creating this fly trap where you would get talked into buying a membership and then they'd be happy if you didn't use it. And we just thought, just the energy around that was wrong. And for us, we wanted to get a very high quality experience and we were willing to pay for it. And we felt like if we asked people to do that every single time that they came to take a class, that it would be incumbent on us to deliver something that was fantastic experience because otherwise they would have no reason to want to come back. Mm-hmm. And we felt that if we created an environment where people could opt in and plan their fitness, that then it could kind of come into their lifestyle. If you just have a membership that's sort of floating out there, oh, I can use it anytime I want. But if we uh, did an online reservation system, which in 2006 was such a big deal, um, that people could log in and they could say, they could look at their calendars and they could look at their work schedules and they could look at their childcare and all those pressures that we all have. And they could find efficient ways to schedule uh, the things that they most most valued. And we wanted to be one of those things in people's weeks. And through the online reservation system, through the um, 
the hospitality that we provided and through the great experiences with our teachers and the classes, people really fell in love with the experience and they, um, we were able to prove out that concept of asking people to pay per class. And you said a couple minutes ago that back in 2006, a lot of people were still trying to find their fitness. And it seems like in today's fitness landscape, there's so many niche workout options available, whether it's spin classes or CrossFit or Orange Theory or climbing gyms. There's so many things out there. And so now that the market is so crowded, you know, do you think if you were to start SoulCycle today, would it be the same success that it's become? Well, it's impossible to know. I mean, what we had to do in 2000, well, the answer is yes, I think so. But of course, I would say that. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why I do think that, but it sort, of, it sort of ties back to what was going on in 2006. In 2006, we had to create not just a marketplace to put our product in. If you really think about it, we had to break open a sector. So at that time, at least if you look at it from a financial services perspective, any gym that had gone public, um, had gone bankrupt, uh, there was just not the commitment to health and wellness that there is today. And I think it's a huge generational shift. I think that you see that shift in everyone, whether you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, health is the new wealth. And I don't think that that mindset was as prevalent you know, 12 or 13 years ago as it is today. I think it was still a core value of you really ask people. But now I think it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, front and center for people. Now, the reason why I think it would still be successful is because what happens in those rooms isn't just about fitness. What happens in those rooms is about people being able to have the space to do whatever it is that they need to do on that bike. And, on a Monday, it could be about going as hard and as fast as they can because they just feel like they weren't able to work out over the weekend or they were away or whatever it was. On a Tuesday, it could be that something really bad happened at work and they're frustrated and they just need to be able to get through this psychologically. And so they're able to use the bike to just burn off that kind of energy. You know, on a Wednesday, it can be any kind of, like, breakthrough around, like, maybe there's a relationship issue or maybe there's a something kind of, you know, people go through a lot of crises. The bike really provides a safe place to just work it out and then be able to regroup and go forward. It's definitely a metaphor, an actual physical metaphor for moving forward in your life physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And when you can deliver that, um, people, then they can find whatever they need to in that room. And I want to ask you a question about management structure. You ran SoulCycle as co-CEO along with your co-founder, Julie Rice. And I wonder, would you recommend that co-CEO structure to other companies or did it work out because of the unique relationship that that you and Julie have? I really like a co-CEO structure. And I think you have to have a very clear definition of roles. So there's a lot that has to happen in order for that to function well. But if you do set it up so that it can function well, and if you both agree to coaching, and you both agree to leading in a way that is aligned, and you both have the same work ethic, so there's a lot of benchmarks, right, that you boxes that you have to check first. Mm -hmm. But if you really can legitimately check those boxes, I think it's a very powerful way to lead a company because one plus one is always more than two. 
and we were able to lead in a way that we supported the folks who worked for us uh, much in a much greater manner than we would have been able to if there was just one of us. And for for Julie and me, what we most valued was building a culture uh, because we felt that setting the tone of a culture would be the defining aspect that would move the needle in terms of our success. And that was primarily based on what we felt like people needed to experience in the rooms, like I previously described. And if you don't have a workforce that is inspired to go to work when they get up in the morning, um, of course it's work and of course there are days that you're off, but by and large, the vast majority of those days, you have a, a drive and an excitement and a, and a passion to like be present in your workplace and really like feel like you're not only giving something, you're getting something on all those um, levels that I previously described, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, if you're able to feel that way at work, then that feels fantastic to the people who are experiencing, um, who are walking through our doors, who are experiencing your product. And from the very beginning, Julie and I wanted to have that be the experience of really everyone who worked for us. And as co-CEOs, we were able to, uh, model that and to lead that in a way that I think might have been very different if there were only one of us. You and Julie sold SoulCycle to the fitness company Equinox in 2011, and I read a quote from Julie where she said that selling the business felt like losing a limb. What was that experience like for you? So we sold the first part of it in 2000, 2011, and then we sold the, the, the a lot more of it. Um, in in 2015, and I bet that she said that after 2015. Um, when we first sold the company, we were um, excited to have partners with a playbook that would help us to scale uh, because we were getting, I mean, we were getting emails literally from all over the world for people wanting us to bring full cycle to I mean, places we had never heard of, and I feel like I'm pretty good at geography. <laughs> uh, and so we realized that it was incumbent on us to figure out how to get it there. If people wanted it and they were hearing from their cousins or their parents or their best friends or whomever about the experiences that, that those folks were having or seeing in the media or whatever, seeing that people were having these experiences in Soul Cycle and they wanted it other places, like we should figure out how to get it to them. So in 2011, I think we were very like excited and optimistic about like the future. We were so psyched to scale the, the business and we, we really did feel like people who had already been to, at that point we only had, you know, seven locations and they were all in New York and Connecticut. Mm. And we felt like, uh, and we had a lot of plans to take it elsewhere. We just felt like having a partner would be great. And then when we sold it in 2015, uh, yeah, definitely, um, Julie felt like it was losing a limb, and I really felt like a part of my heart got ripped out. There's no question. You know, we've always felt like Soul Cycle was a love child uh, that we created for ourselves and for you know the world at large. And for an entrepreneur who's kind of in a similar spot, thinking about selling their business, selling their their baby in a sense, you know, what advice would you give them in terms of? what to think about as they consider making that decision? And, you know, are there things that you wish that you'd known as you started preparing for that level of change? Well, you don't know what you don't know. So I would say that um, there's two things that I always tell 
because uh, I do a lot of, of, of um, I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs and, and people, you know, whether they're raising money or they're selling or whatever, the main thing to remember is that the term sheet is just a piece of paper and you don't want to get attached to that money until it's in your bank account because you won't be able to make good decisions hmm. that are smart and powerful business decisions if you're already attached to what you're seeing on there because most entrepreneurs are scrappy, you know, like you go through a lot to, to get your business to where it is. And when you're finally facing, you know, a check after all those years of, you know, blood, sweat and tears, it's very, you know, it's very compelling. So that's the main thing is when you're, you know, when you are looking at selling to just remain focused on your core business, because sometimes things don't come together and you don't want the business to fall apart while you're distracted negotiating with people. And then the second thing is culture. You know, I think it's very important that if you can be culturally aligned with a strategic or an investor, it just makes things so much easier because then you're not fighting battles, uh, you know, sort of before the war has already happened. Like you want to save your energy for being able to compete with your real competitors. And if you're having to um, manage uh, disconnect in terms of, of um just perspectives um, with your money partners, or it's it's very challenging. You've since formed Dopamine Ventures and Life Shop companies. So, can you talk about your role with those organizations and what your post Soul Cycle years have looked like? Yes. So, um, Julie and I started a Life Shop after we left Soul Cycle that could be a place for us to be able to advise companies that were. Um, aligned with our interests and be able to invest and advise um, those uh, together. And so Julie and I do a couple of those together. And then um, I liked doing that kind of work. So additionally, I started Dopamine Ventures in order to do the same thing. So I have um, basically invested in about 45 companies, and there's a, I take a small handful every year um, where I take a more active role and help them um, kind of get from A to A to G instead of A to B and really help the founders move much more quickly. So examples of those um, companies would be Within, um, which is an acupuncture startup based based here in New York, um, and a few more companies that I don't know that other people would have heard of. And then Julie and I, on the other hand, um, have done The Wing, um, which is a all-women's co-working space, which has been very successful. Um, so it's been really fun for us to work with these founders and to help them um, just achieve their goals a lot faster because um, they have have the, a relationship with somebody who's seen it and, and done it before. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.